Welcome to Table Talk, the podcast series where clinical experience informs optimal human function. I'm Brandon. And I'm Romy. And our guest today is Chris Williams, the founder of ProClinic in Surrey and deputy unit leader of osteopathic technique at the UCO in London. Chris is here today to discuss his experience teaching osteopathy as well as working in professional motorsport. And how this fed his current healthcare practices. So, welcome. Morning. Um, yeah, so start us off, I'd just like to talk about like... Uh, what drew you into osteopathy as a career in the first place? It's weird, actually. Um, I went to, I've, 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 when I was at school, I wanted to be an architect. Um, sadly, uh, where I went to school, uh, I got distracted in the sick form. Um, we, uh, we had girls in the sick form and it kind of just um, distracted me a little bit from my studies. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I didn't get my grades for for um, architectural college, so I went off to uh, Leicester, um, uh, De Montfort University, or as it was nicknamed, Del Monte, because they'll take anyone, um, or say yes to anyone, and uh, I did a physics and business degree um, for the first two years, and during that degree, it was tough, but actually, well, I felt it was tough at the time, um, so after two years, I thought this isn't for me, so I went back to um school uh, A-level college and did biology and chemistry A-level um, with a view to doing this and, and the reason I chose this was actually my mum and dad used to go and see a chiropractor and uh, then they'd come home and they'd go oh, you know give us a massage Chris and I was like I had no idea what I was doing and they were going oh it feels really good um, what about a career in that and I thought okay well that's something I was a bit kind of didn't really know what I wanted to do uh, chiropractic college was in Bournemouth and didn't really interest me as a place to go to uni so uh, so I ended up kind of um, looking at places in London and obviously I saw the BSO spoke then my parents then switched to an osteopath they were seeing and kind of was set the cast was set then for, for um, the, the BSO um, just like this lo- location we were in Trafalgar Square at that point back in 1995 uh, 21 year old in London it was, it was, yeah, it was interesting. That's a really interesting way of coming into the profession. Yeah, it, it wasn't kind of, I, I, it wasn't something I woke up at the age of four going, I really need to be an osteopath. It just yeah. kind of, it was just one of those things actually. And and uh, I've always kind of been, I, I like interacting with people. And, and I think it was kind of one of those things of, okay, where can I interact with, with people, get to know people, uh, and then, and then uh, kind of also help people. I've always kind of been someone that kind of tries to help people. Um, and it just kind of seemed a natural kind of progression, really. Um, and actually, when we started studying um, with Chris Thomas, who's my boss here, but we, we graduated in the, in the same year, and it was pretty, it was, it was intense. And actually, looking back at my previous degree, it was really easy. Um, looking in hindsight, um, it's, it's funny, at the time you think it's really hard, but actually looking back, it was really, really easy compared to, to this. Um, but because I enjoyed this, this didn't seem uh, that it didn't. Whilst it was hard work, it didn't seem uh, a chore to do it because it was interesting. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's definitely how I feel. I kind of yeah. get <laughs> lost in the in the knowledge and the learning, but yeah. it's a really really fun journey. Um, and can you tell us a little bit more about your journey since qualifying as an osteopath? Yeah. So uh, I came back to teach in so '99. I qualified in '99. Um, I then uh, set up practice and worked for uh, the osteopath actually that, that uh, initially kind of uh, directed me towards BSO. 
I worked with him for a while and I worked with an old tutor from here uh, for a while. Uh, and then I also then uh, started a practice or took over a practice at the BBC Television Centre. Um, and I came back to teach, I think it was around 2001. I was set to go to Australia, personal plans changed. Um, and so uh, sadly, uh, dad, I lost my dad, so I decided to stay here. So cha plans changed. So I came back to teach in 2001 or 2000, 2000. Uh, did an equine and canine course, which is now part of us now, uh, with Stuart McGregor up at Wantage. Uh, and then uh, life kind of took a weird change. I kind of met my ex-wife and uh, then we settled down and had kids. At that juncture, uh, I uh, stopped teaching. I kind of gave up my osteopathy. Um, I thought with the kids I needed a little bit more stability income-wise. Uh, for whatever reason, so I went into the world of recruitment and joined Michael Page in City, and then uh, and then I joined a small firm out in Rygate, and ended up ended up uh, growing that business and becoming director and uh, shareholder and what have you. Um, and people will go, why? It's got nothing in common with osteopathy, but actually it has. It's got a lot in common actually. Recruitment because you're talking to people, getting to know people. Uh, with our case histories, we get information out of people they might not want to share. And that's what you do on, the, on a, with the job search and CV, etc. Um, and it's about building relationships and building relationships very, very quickly, very, uh, um, at a very good level, very, very quickly. And there's a degree of manipulation uh, in in both as well. So, um, so yeah, there's a lot of synergy between osteopathy and recruitment. Um, and then, um, two thousand uh, late two thousand eleven, I kind of uh, took on a house project and. Uh, I decided that um, I was doing about 70 hours in the office a week. Um, members of staff weren't putting their weight. One of my business partners wasn't putting their weight. So I thought, yeah, I've had this. So I sold my shares, um, came back to the profession, went through all the kind of GEOSC re-registration, etc. Um, and which is why if you look at GEOSC, it says I registered in 2012. Um, some other reason they won't give me my 1999 credibility um, and then came back and came back literally came back teaching in in that uh, September or August um, back back here and and you know what I haven't I haven't regretted the move back and actually I'm better for the diversity that I did in terms of the time and recruitment and everything because it, it really taught me to appreciate what I did have mm. so, yeah, but there's some uh, some skills that you managed to transfer back across from recruitment that you didn't have an osteopathy before. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest things I learned in recruitment, well, twofold. One was how to run a business properly. Uh, and the second one is uh, if you spend too long in recruitment, you can become a kind of a slight cynic when people say stuff. And people go, they'll tell you one thing and you can see straight through it. And I guess from that perspective, that's kind of uh, really kind of taught me to be reflective in my practice. So, you know, when a patient says to me, oh, yeah, no, it's all good, and you know it's not, you'll kind of, you'll get that sort of almost sixth sense of actually there's something underlying here that, that, that I need to investigate further. Or um, it just teaches you to, to kind of be 
to, to, to question yourself. And I don't think, you, you can question yourself in two ways. You can question yourself in a negative way or you can question yourself in a positive way. Personally, I think you can question yourself, both of those are positive. Because I think if you question yourself in a negative way, you're, you're challenging yourself to, to want to find that, that solution and want to answer, or you're questioning yourself saying, actually, yeah, you did that really well. But both those have equal uh, place. And I think that's what it taught me, is to, to really kind of um, ensure that I'm doing the best job I can. And so when you came back into osteopathy, like you said, you had to go through yeah. the whole process again yeah. to uh, kind of, not requalify, but sort of uh, become... Um, re-registered yeah re-registered yeah. I guess yeah. um, and how was that process for you in terms of yeah I guess becoming a, an osteopath again and how did you have to work at um, sort of sensitivity again and sort of developing those kind of things um, to be honest it was a bit like going back to like a duck to water it was kind of uh, I had to do 150 hours of, of CPD at the time which uh, took its um, uh form of various different things such as you know going sit going back into clinic observing that sort of stuff um you know i'd always kept my skills up um i hadn't totally lost my skills but also i have to say some of the stuff for example with uh technique patient care <laughs> get, get a little plug in there um i think because i taught i learned it correctly the first time it wasn't something that I necessarily, obviously I had to repolish my skills, but actually the core elements were already embedded. And I think from that perspective, it made my journey back far easier. Yeah, going back to your uh, your experience of setting up and working in the BBC, yeah. um, what kind of common injuries did you encounter when working in that environment? To be honest, you had a, you had a, a kind of split really between um, a lot of desk-based people and a lot of camera, uh, camera folk as well. So it was carrying uh, heavy camera equipment and that sort of stuff. Always um, on one side, I assume, as well. Yeah, it, yeah, it was. And actually, funny enough, um, one of the uh, patients there who was a cameraman ended up coming here. Um, and when I came back to teach in, 20, uh, in 2012... He was a fourth year student here. And I was taking the register and I went, I recognize that name. <laughs> and uh, I said, um, you worked at the BBC? He said, yeah. And I, I came and saw you and you were the reason I then went down this route. And he was like, oh, well, that's quite, yeah. Yeah, so it was, that was a kind of quite overwhelming, really. <laughs> I was like, oh, I've had a positive impact from that. But yeah, yeah. That's wonderful. Um, yeah, I guess you, you see things come full circle. Yeah, so, totally. Like you said, it was kind of a duck to water transition, yeah. and that was sort of a sign to maybe encourage you to yeah. pursue that. So, and and it's, it's something I haven't regretted, actually, to mm, be fair. That's wonderful. So. Um, and we also know that you work in professional motorsport as I an do. osteopath. Yes. And I remember you saying one day that it was a very hard industry to get into. And so how did you go about networking your way in and making those connections? So when I initially qualified... Uh, back in 99 I was uh, a naive 20 something year old what was I 25 25 year old uh, I started writing and at that time actually funny enough I actually treated the owner of or the um, head of British American Tobacco which at the time had a British American racing team uh, Formula 1 team um, he very kindly uh, invited me down to his uh, yacht for the Monaco Grand Prix and um, 
watched it on there. I went down with a friend of mine and um, a great weekend. And I thought, oh, great, this is it, I'm in. And then nothing came of it. Um, and I wrote to all the F1 teams at the time, as you naively do, hi, I'm newly qualified. And didn't hear really anything apart from thanks, but uh, thanks, but no thanks. So after all the TBNT letters, um, I kind of just put a pin in it really. And it was always something that I wanted to do. And then when I came back to profession, um, I started treating uh, a guy, a friend of mine, who uh, was a professional driver. Uh, he was not circuit, he was more drift. And then I just started treating a friend of his. Um, and then it just so happened I was treating someone and uh, we were talking, we got talking about motorsport and I said, oh, do you know what, I, I love it, I'm a frustrated driver, I really wish I should have pursued more and stuff like that. And then he said, uh, so you need to talk to John, or t no, Ted, whose name is John, logically. <laughs> you need to speak to Ted, um, have a word with him. So I spoke to, I, I got introduced to Ted and uh, Ted said, sure, no problem, I'll introduce you to John, another John, uh, who was at Aston Martin Racing. Uh, and uh, that was a cap chap called John Cam Calamari. Um, Calamari, Calamari, Calamari. Um, and had an interview with him and then started working and the first race I ever went to for Aston was at Texas, um, uh, Circuit of the Americas. Uh, he was, I think he was, he was having his first child. So um, he said, look, can you cover me? Um, and got me up to speed as to what we needed to do. And that was the first race I ever did. And that was a six hour race looking after, four cars, I think it was. Uh, so four cars on average, probably anywhere between eight and 12 drivers. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, it was beltingly hot. It was about 60 degrees humidity. It was, uh, it was, it was but it was awesome. Um, what conditions to be in? That's yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and it and it's so so the role uh, I did obviously nutrition online um, some online sort of nutrition courses. I did a, a strength and conditioning course as well. Um, so the role kind of emerged or sort of evolved rather from it's not purely kind of hands-on treatment necessarily. There's a whole kind of multifacet to it. There's um, sort of making sure they're eating the the right foods, the right hydration. Um, Obviously, if they need anything, um, uh, you, you provide treatment or, or um, support from that perspective. Um, it's also warm-ups, um, both physical and mental, um, getting them kind of uh, reflex ready. Um, but then you put your PA hat on, and your PA hat on is means you're responsible for all their kit, uh, making sure the helmets, the um, uh, earpieces, balaclavas, gloves, race suits are all where they need to be. Uh, and then you then put your... Uh, even more of a PA hat on where you then have to go, right, we need to be at a driver briefing or we need to be at a, a autograph session. Um, plus also, if you miss the autograph session or even a minute late, it's a thousand euro fine straight off the bat. So there's some added in input there from the team principal going, this needs to run smoothly. Um, and then on top of that, there is you're also looking after the team, making sure all the teams have got drinks and all that sort of stuff. So you you end up, certainly with Aston, I think we had however many drivers, but then 70 in the team, so mechanics and engineers. So you have to learn all their names very quickly. Um, 
but also if you're walking around a garage and there's a piece of litter you, you pick it up or if, if something comes in the car's been smashed up and they need bits bobs you help out so it's not purely you're not purely there in an osteopathic perspective you are there as part of a massive engine that needs all these little individual cogs to all pull in the same direction so it it's yeah it's intense Oh, wow, you really thrust right into the deep end and become this integral pillar of the team yep. straight off the bat, even off the first race. That's just yep. <laughs> must have been madness. To, it, 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 to it's, it is, and and it's and and also during the race uh, or any kind of practice, when the moment the cars are on track, you've got your earphones on, you're listening to the car, you're preempting um, what's going to happen as well. Uh, so you're involved with the driver changes, um, whether they've got their kit ready to get in the car, their little seat insert. Um, you're making sure the driver getting out, you take all their stuff, give them a drink. Um, so you're con- you're listening intently for six hours, if it's a six hour race, over four cars. So you've got four sets of engineers, four sets of drivers all talking to each other and you're trying to differentiate who's having an issue, who's not. So it, yeah, it's good fun. It's good fun. It must be really fulfilling to be a part of a team because you think that being an osteopath or a healthcare practitioner in that kind of um, measure is quite a solitary yep. profession, and so being part of that must be a really nice way to balance it. Yeah, I think I think that's a very valid point. I think the kind of uh, historic practice working on your own, you are very much working on your own. Yes, you see people every half hour. Or the old days, we used to go back to back with half hour slots you see someone different for every half hour, but there's no continuity. There's no, the moment they've gone, you've got a new person and you're probably even having the same conversation with that individual. Hi, how are you? Yeah, how's your day going? How's the week? Good weekend. You know, it's a bit like going to the hairdressers. Oh, going anywhere nice on holiday. Um, So actually as being part of a team, there is that kind of conversation you'll drop off there and then you'll pick up five minutes later or, you know, so it's really, yeah, it is really nice to be part of a team. and got to see some amazing parts of the world as well. Mm, can imagine. Well, yeah, I guess. So you've gained a whole load of skills that, that deal with managing people a lot as well. So um, as a founder of your clinic, yeah. um, what were some of the challenges that you faced with, with setting that up? And also some of the skills that you've transferred across and all these different facets that have enabled you to do that? I think one of the biggest, um, uh, the biggest things you need when you're starting a practice is motivation. Okay, and it's all very easy to get bogged down in the motivation of I need to earn money. Um, and we had used to have an expression in, in, in recruitment is the moment you chase money, you won't have it. Don't chase the money, basically. Um, but do your job. And when I first set back up, uh, I, got, I was very fortunate. I, there was a little farm uh, shop area down close to home. And... I got a little little room in the, one of the barns there, and it was lovely, really nice setting. Um, got on really well with the owner of the farm and the manager of the farm, and the farm shop was going through its own kind of evolution as well. And so I leafleted the whole area because um, I didn't. I literally it was a fresh clinic. Leafleted the whole area, sat back and went right. It's gonna ring. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it didn't so fortunately at that time I was obviously teaching here for a couple of days a week and also I was working back with the original osteopath I worked with when I first qualified so I had income to kind of tide me over 
and I had the house build that was kind of going on in the background. So I was busy, but it was very, but it was also one of those things where you're sitting there going, I'm paying rent for this place and there's not, I've got nothing coming in f- from that one one place. Fortunately, the rent was, uh, I think it was something like 230 quid a month. So it's Bad. nothing, <laughs> uh, it's nothing. But I have to say, it seems like nothing, but when you've got nothing paying that, you going, well, hang on a minute. So yeah, so, so it, it does put a bit of pressure on you, but then slowly and surely it started to build up and uh, then I took a bigger space. Um, why I took a bigger space? Because I kind of wanted to grow the practice um, and I wanted to take other people on, but the problem, the problem I had, and this is the, this is the issue uh, with, with running a recruitment, a recruitment business, an osteopathic profession, uh, business is, People are very, if they come to see you and they trust you and then you suddenly turn around and say, oh, by the way, I've got an associate. Um, and, and this is probably, you've got to be quite thick skinned as an associate because having been in that position twice now where I've worked for someone who's got an established practice, there will be patients that come in and go, oh, I'm only seeing you because so-and-so is busy. So automatically you're starting from a negative perspective as far as they're concerned. They feel that the principal is the person they want and you're the second choice. So automatically you've got a hill to overcome. And if you're slightly um, uh, sensitive, which I guess we all are um, to varying degrees, you do take it personally and, 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 and it's a question of trying to get over that. So. And, and I kind of started to look at um, other um, practitioners, osteopathic practitioners, but everyone was going, well, actually, do you know what, Chris? I'm going to wait. I'll wait and see you. It's not going to be for three weeks. It's fine. I'll wait. So then you kind of think, then I thought, well, okay, well, I'll take someone else on from another profession. And again, whilst, okay, you're not necessarily competing for patients necessarily from that perspective, you are entrusting someone with your brand. And it's a very, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm a bit particular, but I, I want to portray my brand in, in the correct way. And if someone has a negative feeling about someone that's happened in my practice, then that's going to reflect on me, whether it's me who's initiated it or, or you know, sort of guilty by association. So I guess from that perspective, I never um, really looked down that route and I know colleagues of mine have grown very big successful um, practices um, I guess from my perspective I think with the teaching the practice the motorsport family it was just too much to try and think of anything more um, and but then having said that I have started a number of side businesses so I don't quite know whether that argument stands <laughs> up um, one of those people <laughs> yeah yeah actually yeah my mind never Actually, a patient said to me yesterday, she said, because uh, I said, I've, I've just, I'm looking at a new business opportunity. She said, you never switch off, do you? And I was like, well, yeah, I do, but I feel guilty if I do. And she's like, yeah, but it's not a question of just switching off. Even when you're sitting on holiday, you're thinking about something else, aren't you? I'm like, yeah. But, yeah. At the same time, you're constantly adding more strings to your bow. And as you yeah. said, a lot of things can uh, can feed each other. Um, yeah, I think I think I think so. And I, also, I think um, 
as I probably said to you guys, I don't know, but you know, certainly this introduction to this first year currently, we've said, you know, all the all your tutors are qualified. We will, we should be able to answer your questions. We should, and that's a big word because um, we are. I, I always see it. We by no means are we the finished article. And I mean, I've been qualified what now, twenty two years. Um, but at the moment I think I'm the finished article, then personally I'll go and do something else because I think it's a constantly evolving um, target. I don't think we ever get to end point. And I think even when I'm pushing up daisies, I'll still be kind of trying to develop. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. And uh, you mentioned that working in recruitment for that period helped you to be a better business owner. And so how did that, what skills did you take into um so osteopathy after that in terms of business resilience okay um, I think in recruitment and I, and I kind of part of me thinks everybody should go and do a job in recruitment um, because I remember ringing someone up and uh, or two people actually I'll give two, two examples I rang one company and uh, it was a I used to recruit in accounting and finance and I rang this accounting firm and uh she said, uh, who's calling? I said, that's so-and-so from, from my company. No, not interested, you're a recruitment firm. And automatically, she's gone on the defensive and just totally blocked me off. And I went, oh, that's a shame. She went, why? And while well, I'm a director of the firm, we were looking for a new set of accountants to look after. Oh, okay, well, you know, no, sorry, too late. Um, so it teaches you how to, I guess, uh, be very wary of your first first impression. And secondly, um, I remember talking to a chap and uh, he was a candidate and he went, just find me a job. And I went, okay, well, we're not a job centre, we're a recruitment firm and, 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 and we will work with you. To f- oh, no, you're pond life. You're no better than an amoeba. Um, and you kind of go, okay, fine. Uh, that's, that's, that's your understanding and your feeling but obviously you've come to us because we're professionals in order anyway uh, it's it just it was just amazing how little people thought of you when you're in that role and actually um and I used to say do you know what actually I'm a qualified osteopath um and I'm having a slight career change at the moment and and automatically that kind of changed their opinion and I guess taking that resilience and not taking um know for an answer when you want to achieve something to grow your business or do something with your business. I think that tenacity and resilience was something that was very transferable. Nice. Um, and referring back to uh, you becoming a father. Yes. Um, has that actually changed your approach to treating patients anyway? Yeah, I think it has. I think it has. Um, when I first became knowingly I was a father, um, <laughs> Um, I still haven't had the knock at the door yet but um, yeah I think it has because I think um, do you know what the 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 stresses and uh, the uh, demands on your time that parenthood gives you um, uh, and it's just something that you don't necessarily get unless you are Um, and I think uh, possibly when I gave or when I stopped initially um, you know I think naivety was there I think I was only what uh, 30 I think when I had my, my daughter 
um, up until then I was still like a 28 you know late 20s kind of okay yeah I was married but it, there wasn't that kind of responsibility and and I think my empathy for some parents were like well your choice you know kids um, you know stop moaning um, but actually do you know what having had children you kind of go wow actually um, and I look back on my parents and go god I used to think you know you knew it all um, but actually you were just winging it and and I think it changes it does change your perception both in terms of uh, outlook for what you want to achieve but also I think it when a patient comes in and you know part of our process is not only the treatment that we actually administer it's our ability to talk and, and, and find that kind of it's, it's often an unload for the patient to, to talk to us because they don't necessarily get that interaction because nine times out of ten someone they're talking to is either a work colleague or a friend and knows the personal stuff um, it does get very interesting when you treat husbands and wives and one offloads something about their husband and then the later that week the husband comes in and offloads exactly the same conversation but from his perspective um, about their partner so you, you it, and it's, loads of experience with that as yeah. well treating people as well so yeah. funny yeah and, it, and it's brilliant and you kind of sit back and go and actually there was, a, there was a funny story I'll rephrase that it wasn't that funny um, there was a story where uh, I was working at uh, these two, pra- two, two different practices and the practices were about eight miles apart and this gentleman came in to one practice on the Monday and he said look can you look at my shoulder and I think I might have shown you guys the slides and uh, he'd had an accident where he'd been taken out on a roundabout by a white van that apparently just drove straight onto the roundabout and killed him. It, not killed him. He, it, it, well, it killed him at the scene. He actually um, stopped. His heart stopped and they resuscitated him. And it, it was the van's fault. The van just drove straight out onto the roundabout and, and, and hit him. About four days later, at my other practice, I treated the van driver. <laughs> and he was telling me about how the cyclist came straight out on the same roundabout and he hit him um, and yeah and it's just very interesting to get the, the sort of the, the, the sort of polarity in terms of argument yeah it's cool um, so going back to your question yes I think being a father um, and a parent does help because you start to understand people's choices you start to understand their stresses that might not necessarily be particularly evident and coming back to how, I guess, being an osteopath is also being an advocate and a yep. listening ear, um, how do you go about sort of protecting yourself emotionally from what you might encounter in day-to-day practice? It's a very good question. Um, so I think, I think initially when I first qualified, I think it was very easy to, to get bogged down with it. Um, and I think you kind of uh, take a lot on that you might not necessarily want to take on um, or should take on. Um, I think, uh, for me, life experiences, uh, I've had, um, sadly lost my brother at a very early age and then my dad um, uh, when he was quite young. And then obviously having gone through the divorce as well without this kind of sounding like a get the violin out. Um, (laughs) But I think from that perspective, um, I read a lot about um, mental strength and learning to know what I should take on and what I shouldn't take on. And I think um, 
that resilience is is kind of something that that uh, you know, for example, when I, I I wasn't particularly my divorce wasn't particularly easy, uh, and somebody said to me, "Oh, have you taken tablets and antidepressants?" And I was like, "No, nothing wrong with that if people want to take that." But for me, it was about okay, I need to get to the cause. I need to get to the problem of why I'm feeling like this, and then deal with that. And I think, um, in answer to your question, it's about developing your own mental strength in order to deal with that, rather than um, rather than letting it become all-encompassing. So now, I think uh, I play sport regularly. I've got um, a nice friend network, um, great partner, and it's just all about making sure that. I look after myself and take that time. And if you do have someone you've got the relevant that you're worrying about, you do have the relevant course uh, routes you can go. Um, but I think you need to have you need to start exercising that uh, mental strength. And I do it through various different things, including meditation and stuff like that. So, yeah. Thank you for that. Sorry. Uh, yeah, with, with developing man- mental strength, a lot of yeah. that comes through experience. Yeah. But um, have you got any recommendations for for books or practices that you do? Something like meditation that you? Yeah. So um, interesting enough, actually, um, I did also a, a, a counselling course. Uh, I can't remember which level it was. Level three, or level four, um, to become a counsellor. Um, uh, whilst, funny enough, whilst I was going through the divorce, actually, which was interesting, mm-hmm. because I was. Um, I was one of uh, 14 in the class, but I was the only um, man. And going through a divorce at that time and being in that environment was quite an interesting dynamic, actually. Uh, But actually something that was very beneficial because you could see kind of other sides to stories or opinions, but also you could see sort of uh, reinforcement of your thought process as well so it was really cool but in terms of in terms of um uh, so i had a patient uh, basically that uh, he came in and he was he was uh, quite a big lad and he kept getting in fights and road rage and um had a slight axe wound where someone had hit him with an axe um <laughs> and um he seemed really stressed i said just out of curiosity have you ever meditated and you were expecting him to use an expletive to tell me somewhere to go. And he went, no. Anyway, I saw him about three months later. And he went, do you know what? I haven't tooted the horn. I haven't got aggressive with anyone. It's changed my life. I was like, wow, brilliant. Um, so yeah, so I used meditation, various apps on the phone. Um, I read three books when I was, uh, at the time I needed them. Uh, one was uh, the Book of Joy, which was a meeting between Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama, which was held in India, I think. Uh, and they sat down for seven days and discussed various questions. Uh, it's not it's not about necessarily about religion. It's about perceptions and stuff like that. That was really interesting. Uh, the Chimp Paradox. Can't remember who that's written by. It's a fantastic book. Yeah. Something Cox, I think. It's yeah, I think it might be. Yeah. Uh, and it's all about um, sort of three parts of your brain and how you uh, react to things. And actually, if someone cuts you up, don't get angry, because you'll get angry, they'll get angry, then you'll ruin your day, you'll get to work, and someone will go, well, you're right, Chris, no, someone cut me up, and then your colleague will go, well, don't worry about it, and then you'll go, well, I'm going to get angry, because why aren't they backing me up, they should be backing me up, and you've ruined your whole day, and actually, do you know what, you weren't late, or you might be a minute late, but think about it, actually, they could be on their way to the hospital appointment, because they're just about to, they'll other half's just about to have a baby or whatever it might be. So 
um, it just teaches you to reframe things. And uh, and the third one was a, a book called Attached, um, which is all about attachment theory. Um, and it looks at three different attachment theories. So it's uh, things such as, um, uh, it's gone now, uh, stable, um, avoidant, and anxious. And basically, uh, a lot of stable people tend to be in stable relationships, but a lot of anxious and, and, and avoidant tend to kind of pair up together. And you're basically like uh, north and south pole on a magnet. The more you need something if you're anxious, the more it will push the avoidant away. And the more the avoidant goes away, the more the anxious, anxious person needs it. So you end up this lovely kind of dance where you're just getting further and further apart. Um, so it's not necessarily purely about relationships as in a, um, you know, uh, partner marital relationship is also about how you interact with people and the question that actually I'm asking you a question you might feel I'm being needy but actually I'm asking it because all I need is a little bit of reassurance and it's how you deal with those types of people so those are the three that I found really quite interesting I meet people somewhere in the middle yeah, exactly. Do you know what I mean? And and, and, and that's the thing. And, and they actually use an example where um, there used to be a TV program called the Around the World Race, uh, where couples used to go around the world and, and have to be in a certain place by a certain time. And, and if they didn't, uh, and this couple were leading, and uh, I think it was like a like an abseil or a bungee jump or something like that. And the uh, the wife wasn't very happy about doing it, and the husband was just like just get on and do it and the more she required his support the more frustrated he got and pushed her away so it ended up that they got to this to do this one bit and actually because they were so poles apart on on where how they needed to succeed it actually cost them the win of the whole thing um, and actually all she needed was do you know what we're going to be alright hold your hand off we go and actually that would have just deflated the situation totally. Is that something that you that you saw after you read the book or did you read the book after that and then recognize that? No, this was this was this was referenced in oh, the book. Oh, referenced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. This yeah, was referenced yeah. in the book and but actually then you go back and go, "Oh my goodness. That's 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 me and them or that's that's and and you then kind of be reflective about every relation every relationship um, uh, that you've had or interaction you've had and you've gone, "Wow, okay." Well, that maybe that maybe that's why that person I perceived rude in Starbucks wasn't actually being rude. Maybe I'd given off a vibe that they were, or whatever. So you you do, but you've also got there's a caveat there. You've also got not overthink things far too much. <laughs> <laughs> it's true that reading these kind of books can definitely make you yeah. completely de- deconstruct yeah. everything. And yeah. um, you never yeah. go out. Yeah, <laughs> but we will put um, links for those books um, okay. below the podcast so people can check them out. But thank you for, for answering that in such a deep way. Coming back to your UCO um, life, how has being a technique tutor informed your personal practice outside of the UCO? Uh, do you know what? It, it, it does. And I, think, and I think part of our responsibility as osteopaths is to educate our patients. And I think... Um, it's like anything. If you uh, if you're told something, even when you're at school or uh, by and parents or aunts and uncles or whatever, if you're told something but you don't necessarily understand the rationale behind it, you'll do it, but not really knowing why. And then if something changes, 
you don't really have an avenue to go down. And I think being a, being a tutor, certainly from a technique perspective, and how we need to blend our message for the students, it's not purely about doing the technique, it's about the communication, it's about the anatomy, it's about um, the function and all that sort of stuff. But I think by doing, by teaching that, it means that I try and educate my patients. So um, I've got a little skeleton in my room called Stan, and Stan comes out fairly often, and I'm explaining what I'm doing to the patient, so the patient can see what they're doing and understand that actually, if they constantly do A, then that is then because of the anatomy is going to create a problem B. Um, so I think I think it, it, it's it's critical in terms of uh, being able to find and it's also being able to find that commonality because students like in recruitment everyone has different interests different levels and you know I, I know some of the students take the mickey out of me for analogies um, but it, it, again the reason I use analogies is to try and find that kind of. Uh, level of understanding that, that, that they can relate to because the moment you try and expose something or explain something that, that they don't relate to you, you're on a lost cause you've got to find that kind of common ground nice yeah reflecting uh, oh well actually talking about your current practice a little bit more yeah um, how do you avoid becoming stale in your practice um, like in order to have the, the optimal effect, effect on patients and stay relevant yeah I think do you know what I think um, if I were to work five or six days in practice, then I would probably have the tendency to do that. Mm. I think because I've got the balance of teaching here and in practice, I don't think I ever have that now because, um, oh, it's a day in practice rather than, oh, it's a day in practice. So it, it kind of gives me that every time I come in on a Monday, um, and I've moved to practice home now, so when I say come in, I mean walk down my stairs. Um, it means that it's it's different to the bulk of my work a week. So actually, that by definition means that it's an exciting, different thing anyway. Um, and I think, um, and I think, with the teaching and the interaction with other colleagues and the discussions that we have in course team and or in the office upstairs there is that constant challenge and I like to see that constant challenge then evolve into, into my practice. And I think, um, I think the danger with what we do, and you alluded to the fact about um, being in a room isolated um, in practice, I think the danger of that is that um, you don't keep yourself fresh, you don't challenge yourself um, because you're kind of in your own little kind of shell and and you're not really having that interaction whereas actually do you know what I think um, you know we share patients upstairs um, where we discuss oh I had this patient or I had that patient and oh wow and you you, you start to really it, it just sharpens your focus so I don't think personally with the with the balance I've got I don't think everyday practice will ever go stale because it will always be this kind of ooh it's a different day you know <laughs> okay there are days where you look at the patient list and think okay um, uh, we, we, we obviously welcome our patients with open arms some you will have a better relationship with than others that's unfortunately human nature but it's about um, uh, welcoming each of those with, with um, 
uh, open arms. And I think if you do feel that some patients are more challenging than others, think about why. And I think that's that's the biggest uh, thing I like is you might look at it and go, oh, okay. But then you think, actually, hang on, why am I framing it like that? Um, and um, without sort of being too kind of Freudian, because that's not where I'm going, um, but I remember speaking to a counsellor once and we were talking about something and uh, I can't remember what we were talking about uh, we were talking about someone on a bike and they went oh did you think about an overweight person on the bike because you're carrying luggage and, and baggage and it's all the baggage about your journey and I was like no it was purely because there was someone on a bike you know and it's kind of like sometimes you don't need to overthink it um, and I think um you can always get too carried away with it. Anyway. Mm. I can see <laughs> I how your uh, counselling course definitely can fuel um, your interactions and kind of yeah. help sharpen your uh, your ability to connect and yeah. empathise with people. Um, and you mentioned a few other courses that you did. And so do you think that um, integrating different disciplines into your osteopathic practice can be uh, a positive thing for osteo- osteopathy in general moving forward? Yes. Um Yes, I do, um, but I think it's a question of making sure that it's with reason. Mm-hmm. And, I, and what I mean by that is, is it's sometimes easy to, uh, oh, I'm going to do this Emperor's New Clothes kind of scenario, when actually um, it's not changing that much, but it's just a different way of... It's, uh, it's a sharpening the tools that you might already be using. Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah and I think sometimes, sometimes um, it's it's easy to kind of think oh well I have to do that because of x y and z but actually do you know what what you were doing was great might give you a slightly different way but actually sometimes um, sometimes what you're doing is great and enough Um, but I think I think if you can integrate stuff that you that benefit it rather than dilute it because I think there are um, there are osteopaths I know where they've done um, sort of homeopathy and they've gone down the route that they've gone now moved so far away from osteopathy that the that certain trait has taken over then my view is you've kind of migrated to a homeopath rather than an osteopath so I think as long as it's it's done in the right way to balance and promote your osteopathic practice then fine I think the moment it starts to take over then you've got to start to think about why the rationale behind it if that makes any sense yeah, <laughs> yeah with your your vast experience as an osteopath and all these I different facets I just experience yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what kind of advice would you give to like younger students and manual therapists who are, who are currently either studying or young graduates uh, don't give your tutors too hard a time um, <laughs> Be nice to them. <laughs> be nice. Be nice to them. They 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 are trying their best. Um, I think. Do you know what? I just think. Never stop scratching, that itch. Okay. If you have an itch, go and find out about it. Um, I think. Um, just because I say something. Don't necessarily. Take it as gospel, as in the sense of. In my experience, it will, and, and I know you guys probably will get frustrated with the word depends. And the word depends does come up an awful, awful lot, and it still will. And I think 
whatever you're doing, it depends. Even in um, sort of uh, sort of um, medicine, in terms of prescriptive medicine or um, uh, elective uh, surgery, there still it depends. And I was actually talking to one of the research chaps over the weekend about some interesting research studies where they've uh, they've done knee operations where they've incised and and, and um, sedated. Uh, 50% they've done the operation, 50% they actually haven't. All they've done is the first bit, and the recovery rate's the same. Um, uh, shoulder decompression is the same. And you kind of think, okay, well, why is that? And I think there's so much more that we, certainly from a psychological perspective, we leave untapped um, that actually we can explore more. And that's personally where I would like to look at is the kind of the more kind of psychological um element of treatment because I think um, I think what we do is amazing I think we could enhance that more and I think possibly you know is it a question I want to enhance it by doing something slightly different with a little tweak here um, from a uh, technique perspective or actually do I want to think okay what other bits can I build onto this from a from a psychological perspective that will enhance that even more um, and I think it's it's understanding the perceptions of people as well so I think when I alluded to the fact about my kind of uh, late 20s when I was kind of losing a little bit of empathy uh, you know some patient were coming oh I've a really bad day oh what's wrong oh, I had a flat tyre really and you kind of go is that it but actually do you know what to them that could be a major thing um, just because to me it wouldn't be and I could change it to them they might not be able to change a tyre or they might not have a spare tyre or they might not they might be running late for something or whatever and actually the impact of that is is just learning to think and I think always putting yourself in the receiving end of that scenario um, would certainly enhance so um, I kind of lost forgotten your question but yes I think um I think as long as it um, promotes osteopathic practice, yes, um, I'm all for people developing as much as they possibly can. Mm -hmm. So you're almost taking, the, with the psychological aspect, you're almost taking a treatment that works very well and then almost adding like a little placebo extra bonus on top of it, that is. Yeah, whether it's placebo or not, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's, um, whether, I think it's, you know, we've all had those scenarios where um, you say to someone, you're right. I'm fine. Oh, now, on the face value, you go, all right, okay, you're fine. Now I'd look at it and go, okay, was that a fine, I am actually fine, or is that a fine, I want to tell you I'm irritated, but I'm not going to. And I think looking at it from that perspective is, uh, and looking at the sort of, or, or the verbalization of people's language around what they're saying to me is is or the reason why they're saying it is is the kind of the element that's more of interest to me um and i think we have such an impact and i don't necessarily think it's necessarily purely a placebo i think there's an element of um i think there's an element of um development there that that people can utilize for their own benefit um, see placebo 
placebo as, as a word obviously meaning that you're applying a treatment and then it works even if it doesn't have any backing that it does work yeah it's actually working but yeah. what i mean by that is like placebo like effects where you're amplifying the effects of something that yeah i think yeah i know I, yeah i know where you're going yeah i know what you mean i i just wonder whether um it's like anything for example if you turn around and maybe my old um, teacher said it at school where he thought, oh, I wouldn't do German for GCSE you're not very good at it um, whether he actually meant that or whether he did it as a way to spur me on and go and do well at it I don't know but it worked do you know what I mean but whether he realised he was utilising a placebo or not I don't know um but it's just, I guess, I find language totally amazing. Um, and the way people write things and the way interpret things. And I think, I'm going to sound like a real old man, which I am, but two-dimensional text or WhatsApp or email, I think is probably one of the most, um, is one of the things I dislike because there's no inference, there's no, in, there's no inflection, there's no meaning, there's no kind of... Um, construct of what you're having that discussion um, and it can be taken and interpreted by the reader so many different ways than it was in, meant by the writer um, and, and you know sometimes people just want to talk and, and if that's a placebo effect then fine fair, fair enough but um, no I, I, I do think we need to sort of I feel we need to look more um, at psychology in and around our treatments and rationales rather than actually sometimes necessarily what we're doing it, they, the two need to they can't be um, unique housemates absolutely when you mentioned that you did that counselling course I thought yes that's it seems so obvious when you yeah. say it but that should almost be part of this degree in a way you know um, yeah I mean you know I, w I would love to uh, I mean you know, when I was a student, student we did we did um, we did psychology uh, as part of the first year, and and um, and I think and I think you know the psychological input impact that that um, manifests itself in the musculoskeletal system is massive and huge, um, and I think it's it's learning to sort of be aware of it, not necessarily understanding it, because you know we're not we're not trained psychologists, but it's being aware of that and also offering potential avenues for those individuals that you can see that it might be an issue um, and I think it's something we certainly need to be aware of um, and I think you know you know with um, the mindfulness uh, courses and stuff like that I think there's huge uh, huge benefit to being aware of stuff like that um, and I think really it's uh, it's part of our responsibility to be aware of the psychological demands that we have on ourselves and on our patients and um, you know especially with uh, all the social media and the kind of the uh, conformities that are required or, or, or perceived by um, people oh I need to be posting this do I no you don't you don't need to be posting the fact that you had an omelette for lunch the fact that you <laughs> know I mean? oh, I'm going to the gym you don't need to post all that but there's there's a need or desire to want to be almost inclusive and it goes back to that book about uh, Desmond Tutu he was doing um, a chat at, uh, in Rwanda and um, 
he was talking to a football stadium full of um, Tutsis and Hutus and obviously they'd had the massive genocide between the two tribes and he said how am I going to there's a palpable kind of tone in, in, in the um, in the stadium he said how am I going to relate to these people without it creating more division so he said I started talking to people about two sets of people that started having fights because of the size and chain differences of their nose and he said the whole football stadium was laughing at how ridiculous that was to go to war over the size of your nose and after about five minutes they started to realise actually he was talking about them and you know I don't know why we do it as humans we, we, we try and split ourselves off into um, whatever different cultures, religions, races etc which is fine but let's try and also come together as one of seven billion people because you know um, it's like with football well, I hate them because they're Tottenham <laughs> what? okay it's just another football team do you know what I mean it's like but we do try and segregate ourselves and I don't know why people like to be in exclusive groups but then go well actually it's not working because um, they don't interact with us well no why don't they because you're as guilty as, as everybody is to try and kind of pull yourself apart think about it we're one of seven billion on this planet and we're all the same we're just different we might have different beliefs we might have different religions skin colour whatever it might be but underneath it all we're all the same so the moment we can start to think like that I think we can then start to have a better environment for everyone to, to actually live and work but yeah. it's a bit deep as soon as we realise that we're all yeah operating a skin suit with the same mm. muscles, the bones, yeah. all of that thing. So the experience of being human is inherently yeah. similar. It's just the experiences that you have are different. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This is why I've really enjoyed even just the, the first year, just kind of going inside of the body. and Because yeah. I did anthropology before I came yeah. here. Okay. And that was the complete opposite. That yeah. was insisting on, I guess, making connections between communities, but mostly seeing what made them unique. Yeah. You know, and uh, huge shifts, obviously, but I've found it so inspiring and fulfilling to, yeah, I guess just on a daily basis, remind yourself that we are all exactly the same. Yeah, we all have our unique qualities. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. We all have our unique qualities and our unique differences. And, and, and I think we need to be aware of those um, uh, differences. And But also I think we need to be um, able to embrace those differences. and um, But embrace them as one, as in like a complete community. And, and no one is better or worse than anyone else. And... You know the life choices you make are you uh, are equally as important as the life choices I make, or or the decisions you know, you know, whatever it might be. And 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 I think you know I might wear an orange t-shirt today, um, and to some person that might signify something, but actually no, it's just because it was an orange t-shirt. Do you know what I mean? And it's just let's just let's just stop kind of trying to isolate and, and and let's embrace everything and I think yeah I don't know um, that's my view anyway <laughs> that was lovely thank you um, also uh, what kind of uh, experience have you had when seeking osteopathic treatment I don't know if that like spurred you on and, and uh, taught you some approaches that have gone into your own treatment um, I've experienced a number of different osteopaths um, some maybe not quite so beneficial to me than others. 
Um, I thought very carefully about how I framed that one. <laughs> um, I see your eyes just thinking. <laughs> and, and I think, do you know what? Any kind of therapy that you have is a very individual thing. And I think that even works with, um, you know, medication as well. I think, you know, some people will get on with some medications and others won't. And I think, and I think you know, I think it's remembering that you've got a choice. And I think it's remembering that actually, you know, if it doesn't work for you, it doesn't necessarily mean it, that modality doesn't work for you, but actually it might be that protagonist of that modality. So therefore, um, I think it's a question of finding what works for you. And I think that's where, going back to the comment about um, having... Um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Partner, you know, um, associates. You know, your patients will want to see you because they've become accustomed to you and they know that what you do works for them. But I think the biggest, um, going back to your earlier question about um, what do you see as some of the challenges when you're newly qualified, I think one of the big challenges is understanding and knowing your limitations. And I think it's all very easy to come out thinking, oh, I'm going to heal the world and I'm the best sociopath since sliced bread. You might well be. Um, but we can't do everything to all people. Um, so I think it's being able to understand actually, do you know what? This isn't right for me to treat or this is outside my scope or actually it's not working. Um, and I do know... Uh, I, I run my practice fairly, fairly, very, <laughs> um, openly. It is very open, to be fair. And I, when I first see a patient, I will turn around and say, if we're not seeing a change within two to three sessions, then we need to have a rethink. And I do know um, other practices where it's kind of six to ten before they start to see a difference or might see a difference. That's their prerogative. However, I just I think, um, you know, if it's not making a difference within that time, clearly I'm not working within the right remit for you as a patient, and therefore um, we're not um, we're not gelling. Um, and I think that's that's the way I've always done it. Is the fact of, you know, if you feel a benefit and I'm seeing a benefit and we're working together, then fine, let's continue. If you're not seeing something or I'm not seeing something, let's have that conversation and then put a plan B together. And I think, um, yeah, that, that's kind of how I, I, I try to look at things. Um, so, yeah, learning to know when not to push a situation or, or, your, or your knowing your limitations. I think that's uh, really smart, and it also builds trust with yeah. uh, patients yeah. because they know that you're just you're not just taking them for yeah. a ride, and you exactly. really have their best interest at heart. Yeah. Which is a uh, yeah, that's a really interesting. And approach. also, I'd, I'd never get people to go, oh, have a course of ten. Not saying there's anything wrong with that. That's that's your prerogative if you want to run your business that way. That, that that's totally your way. However, my concern with that, pers- from a personal perspective, is um, will they need ten if they're going to pay? Am I kind of enticing them? Am I moulding their head to go, well, I have to come because I've got 10? Am I um, putting my business preference on them to say, um, 
I want your money up front, but I'm going to give you a discount. Is that right for me to entice them that way? Is it, is it for me, is it ethically correct for me to entice them that way? If, let's say, after four treatments, they're not um, getting better, okay, obviously you've got to refund that money. So personally, personally, and I'm purely talking personally, and I'm not saying there's anything right or wrong with that business model, for me, I'd rather go each step because then that trust is, is, is there. Um, and um, yeah. Wonderful. And um, moving forward, would you be comfortable sharing with us any professional or even personal goals that you have? Ooh. Yeah, yeah. I want to run a race on Saturday and win the race on Sunday. That'd be great. Um, do you know what I, I would? Um, I've been what nine months, ten months in this in this uh, role now, deputy unit leader, and I'm loving it actually. And and um, working with great team, and I would love to be more involved in in in. Uh, Sort of where we are taking the university, even even more so. Um, so yeah. So personally, I, I would um, love to get my sort of self more ingratiated, engrossed, engrossed, <laughs> more engrossed uh, uh, in 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 uh, sort of university uh, direction. Uh, I'd also learn to love to learn how to speak properly. Um, <laughs> and uh, from a from a practice perspective. Yeah, do you know, I, I think I think I want to just make sure that my patients are comfortable with what they're getting. Um, and I want to make sure that my uh, skill set is developing um, in whichever shape, size or direction that means. There is no kind of... I want to go down that route or that route. It's very much right. Okay, what are we looking to achieve? Where are we looking to go from a profession perspective? And I just want to keep helping students to reach their potential. But when they qualify, they're adding value to the profession rather than just graduating people from that perspective. I want people to try and help drive the profession forward. That's cool. Thank you for that. Um, and lastly, have you got anything that you would like to uh, to plug or, or bring up to uh, to advertise? Since we've uh, Ooh. Um, so you're a pro pro clinic. Still pro clinic, yeah, strong. that's down in Surrey. Uh, um, that's that's a uh, practice down in Surrey. Uh, to be fair, um, I am pretty booked up. Uh, so there is a bit of a wait, um, uh, but because he's very good. Or you know, to be fair, if if uh, any anybody's on the motorsport front and needs any support, any races, um, uh, feel free to get in touch as well. Um, you know, um, working kind of anything up to twenty four hour racing uh, experience across um, anywhere. So there's not really many formulas I haven't worked in apart from Formula One. Um, so if anybody wants any help on that, um, both from a from a, um, a trackside support uh, or indeed other sort of driver support, let us know. I can either put you in touch with the right people or we can sort something out. Thank you. Thank you.
Yeah, cool. We'll leave all contact details in the comments below. Cool. Right, thank you very much for coming. No worries. Thanks very much. Cheers. That was wonderful. That was um, great. And we will see you on the next episode of Table Talk. Mm-hmm.